Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome to episode 600. It's been a long, terrifying, and incredible journey to get here. Tales to Terrify has evolved and changed a lot over the years to become the twisted creature that now creeps into your ears every week. Audio horror fiction has always been the blackened heart of our podcast. But we've had plenty of different features and formats that have haunted the peripheries of the show, from book and movie reviews, to ghost hunters, to tours of terrifying local legends. I'd love to hear from you if there's something from our past that you treasured and truly miss, or if there's something you'd rather leave in the oubliette. At the center of it all, though are the talented people that have crafted and contributed to this experience. The hosts, editors, writers, and narrators that curate each and every episode. Seth, Meredith, Andrew, and Crystal, as well as our fantastic team of slush readers, not to mention all of those who came before. I cannot thank you all enough for sharing your shadows with us. It's because of amazing people like you that I'm able to say 
Welcome to episode 600. That goes for you, too, children of the night. Yes, you. The one with the earbuds in. Thank you for inviting us into your lives, into your nightmares, for giving us the chance to make your days a little darker and your nights that much more unsettling. Whether you listen while doing the dishes or yard work, or tune in during long drives or your commute on the train, maybe you're even curled up alone late at night under the covers, trying desperately to ignore that human-shaped shadow lurking at the foot of your bed. Knowing that we get to invade your imagination and leave our inky footprints behind is a thrill like no other. Thank you for joining us, and here's to the next hundred horrifying episodes. Tonight, we'll hear the first half of our Bram Stoker Award-nominated tales for this year. But first, we have another Stoker-related treat for you. Thanks to the intrepid terror-seeking of our fiction editor, Meredith, we've procured a couple copies of the new book based on the wildly popular email newsletter experience, Dracula Daily. Meredith's been a fan for a while, and gives it two bloody fangs up. Here's what she had to say. The only thing more fun than rereading Dracula is rereading Dracula with the internet. Even Bram Stoker would agree that the comments, snark, and fan art in this beautiful bound edition only enhance the story. And if he doesn't agree, then, well, he's dead anyway, so who cares? Dracula belongs to the fans now. Matt Kirkland proves it. Honestly, the idea behind the newsletter, and now book, is brilliant. Bram Stoker's Dracula is already made up of letters, diaries, telegrams, and newspaper clippings, and every part of it has a date. The whole story happens between May 3rd and November 7th. Dracula Daily builds off of this format in the most modern way, posting a newsletter each day that something happens to the characters, in the same timeline that it happens to them. It lets you read the book via email in small digestible chunks, as it happens to the characters. Building on the online experience, the Dracula Daily book combines Stoker's original text with reader-generated content for a version of Dracula that's a fun and immersive experience perfect for vampire scholars, Dragon Daily readers, and newcomers to the story. Inside, you'll find a rich selection of artwork and memes from the newsletter's hundreds of thousands of subscribers, from comics celebrating Dracula's famous wall-climbing ability to armchair analysis of the novel's complicated love triangles. The witty commentary and colorful fan art brings a unique twist to the classic tale. Thanks to Meredith, we've got a special pair of advanced copies of the book to give away. One reserved for our supporters on Patreon, and one for our listeners at large. Seems like the perfect way to celebrate our Stoker stories and our 600th episode to me. All you need to do, send us a message through email, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram with your favorite work inspired by or adapted from Bram Stoker's famous tale. 
I'll post reminders on our social media channels, too, so keep your eyes peeled for that. Of course, if you'd like to guarantee your copy, check out the pre-order links in the show notes and earmark one for yourself. It releases in September. You can also get a sneak peek at all the extra goodies you'll get just for pre-ordering. Well, now that your appetite is wet for some Bram Stoker-approved fiction, let's see what exceptional horrors this year's awards have in store. Our first Stoker-nominated story this evening comes from Douglas Gwillem. Douglas Gwillem has been known to compose a weird fiction rock opera or two. He edited Triangulation for four years, and now co-edits The Midnight Zone. He's an active member of the Horror Writers Association and has taught at Alpha Young Writers Workshop. See him read classics of the proto-weird on YouTube, and check out his stories at Lamplight, Lucent Dreaming, Novel Noctule, Penumbric, and Tales from the Moonlit Path. Or listen at Bloody Disgusting's Creepy Podcast and Tales to Terrify. Children of the Night, join me for Douglas Gwillem's Stoker-nominated Poppy's Poppy, first published in Penumbric, April 2022. Sometimes I go into Daddy's office when he's out in the garage or still at work, and Marjorie and Mama are too busy to want my help. I'm not really supposed to, because of the time I got into Daddy's stamp collection and reorganized it, but I'm older now. I I don't touch anything. I just look. Mama always says it's important to remember that you don't look with your hands. I look, and he looks back. And I don't touch. But sometimes we talk. He whispers. And I listen and try to say something back that he'd understand. Something about how life is now. About how we're all okay and he shouldn't worry. I think he worries. He sat there on top of Daddy's computer desk for a long time before I noticed him. Probably longer than I've been around since when there was only Marjorie. He's in a frame, but I I don't think it bothers him. It's got pretty green and red stones around it. And there's a a sparkle like that near his eyes, even though it's black and white. So it seems like a good place for him. He has Daddy's black eyebrows, and his eyes look the way Daddy's look when he says, Elizabeth, this is very serious. And his hair is short but curly and parted funny to either side. Like, he doesn't have hair at all, but feathers. If I hold my hand over those eyebrows and eyes and the feathers, it's just nose and mouth and chin, 
and it looks like me, even with the shiny, bristly mustache. Like if I opened my mouth and talked in that room by myself, those lips and teeth and tongue would move too and tell me and only me things reflections in mirrors never do. He doesn't look like Marjorie at all. Marjorie says he doesn't look like any of us, that he looks old and dead and flat as a pancake. She says daddy told her he was Poppy's Poppy, that he was my grandpa's grandpa. And when she says the word was, she says it like she thinks it matters a lot. He's not a person anymore, Elizabeth, she says. He lived a long time ago and he's gone. But he's there. He's right there between daddy's old monitor, so old it doesn't have a touch screen and it's just like a TV. And the stack of books he never finishes. He's there and I can tell he matters. Yesterday it rained. Marjorie didn't want to go outside, but the puddles were really good and I asked and asked. And you know how grandma says the squeaky wheel, which means always ask. So Marjorie stood under the porch watching me, making sure I didn't fall into any of the puddles and disappear. She wasn't happy about it and sniffed a lot and pulled her sweater into her armpits. Finally, she just went in. I knew I wasn't going to fall down any puddles anyway. Not with Poppy's Poppy in the house. He was the reason, when I fell off my training well bike and knocked out my front teeth, that I hadn't been worse, that I hadn't died. I'm not stupid. I know about death. When Grandma goes to Poppy's grave, I know what it means. He's under the ground, like Ms. Boodles, my turtle. I put her in the shoebox, and Daddy played the harmonica, and I put dirt down myself, even if I felt like I wouldn't have wanted Miss Boodles to see me do it. Poppy's Poppy should have been dead. I, I knew that because Daddy said he was born exactly a hundred years before I was. But Poppy's Poppy wasn't. He'd sat on tables and desks and even hung on the wall. He watched out for us, the sons of his sons he said, except now there weren't any sons, just me and Marjorie. And he wanted us to know that that was okay, that he loved us too, that he'd keep us safe until we had sons of our own, that he had ways to keep us safe because he was a sorcerer. I danced in the rain, and I could almost see him peeking around the clouds, keeping me from falling down puddles into hell or, or coal mines or or whatever. And then it wasn't raining enough, and the puddles were all splashed out. And so I started to think about, what if I did fall down into a puddle and disappear? And, and Marjorie wasn't there to call the fire department or, or whatever. So I went into the back door by the garage, peeling my clothes off and feeling a little sore. And when I came through the door into Daddy's office, she was standing there, right there, holding Poppy's Poppy and looking at him like he was giving her that look, like he was saying something to her she didn't want to miss. Which was wrong and made me feel like somebody was poking me in the belly with a stick. Elizabeth, Marjorie was saying, Have you been touching this? You mustn't touch it. Well, I said no, because you have to say no to Marjorie when she says things like that. Don't be such a liar, 
I can see your fingerprints on it. She didn't say him. She said it. But I knew what she was thinking. I knew what she wanted. She wanted to take him away from me. She wanted him all to herself. I got crafty. I told her, okay, that I wouldn't. But that she shouldn't touch him either. Because he was important to daddy. That she should put Poppy's Poppy down. Now, I said. She made a squished bug face and slapped at me with the hand she wasn't using to hold Poppy's Poppy away from me. The door was still open behind us, and the rain started to pick up again. I thought of the puddles, and I thought of Poppy's Poppy. He had always protected us. I had to protect him. I planted my feet, and I ducked under her arm, and I grabbed him with both hands. The glass clinked against the frame in my hands. Marjorie slid on the water we tracked on the floor and fell out onto the cement, out onto where I lost my teeth. She fell backwards and made an ugly sound. We had to go to the hospital. Poppy's Poppy said it was okay. I'm hugging him in his frame and nobody's telling me I shouldn't. Mama and Daddy are crying, but Poppy's Poppy says it will be okay. He's always taking care of us. Marjorie was never going to have sons. Not like my sons, he says. Of course not. Marjorie doesn't look like him at all. That was Douglas Gwillem's Stoker-nominated story, Poppy's Poppy, as read by Michelle Kane. Michelle is from the Kansas City metropolitan area. She has a dulcimer and a baudron that she doesn't have time to play because she spends her time working in a cube farm and being a mom to her son and their Labrador. And, of course, narrating stories when she has the chance. She can be found on Twitter at Shell Davis 72. Thank you, Michelle. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Our second Stoker-nominated tale 
comes from Anna Taborska. Anna Taborska writes horror stories and screenplays. Her body of work includes three short story collections, Bloody Britain, Shadow Cats, and For Those Who Dream of Monsters, recipient of the Dracula Society's Children of the Night Award. Her work has been nominated thrice for a British Fantasy Award and for a Bram Stoker Award five times. Anna has also directed five films, including award-winning drama The Rain Has Stopped, and worked on 20 other film and TV productions, such as the BBC-slash-PBS series Auschwitz, Inside the Nazi State. Learn more about Anna at her website and IMDb page. Links, as well as some trigger warnings, are in the show notes. Listen with me, children of the night, to Anna Taborska's The Star, first published in Great British Horror 7, Major Arcana, by Black Shuck Books, 2022. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Up above the world so high, like a diamond in the sky. From the Star by Jane Taylor Richmond Park, the largest of England's royal parks. 2,500 acres of woodland, grassland, Gardens and ponds, home to 650 deer, two shire horses, 144 species of bird, 250 types of fungus, 1,200 ancient trees, 1,350 species of beetle, and something else. Goldie! The Labrador rarely strayed far from her side, and Margot was getting worried. She had parked her Peugeot in the Pembroke Lodge car park, and she and the dog had headed south along a narrow woodland tract, surrounded by waist-high ferns. It wasn't long till Goldie disappeared into the bracken. Goldie! An excited bark reached Margot from somewhere off to her left, then a deep growl and a whine. Goldie, come here this minute. Silence fell, then a rustling in the undergrowth. Margot peered nervously into the tall ferns. She breathed a sigh of relief when Goldie burst into view. But Margot's relief was not to last long. What you got there, girl? Even before acquiring her furry companion, Margot had known that Labradors had a reputation for being stomach-driven but Goldie was nothing short of a canine dustbin. 
let her off the lead for five minutes and she'd try to eat every crisp packet, every discarded McDonald's wrapper and piece of offal within sniffing distance. Lord only knew what she'd got hold of now. It looked like a stumpy branch of some sort. Oh my god! Margot's stomach lurched as the Labrador dropped its haul and started whining again. Then Margot was hyperventilating and bringing up her lunch all over the sandy path. She didn't notice Goldie start to growl and whimper. Neither did she notice the ferns rustle behind her. As Margot straightened up and caught her breath, a filthy, stinking claw clamped over her mouth and nose from behind, and she was dragged backwards into the bracken. Goldie whimpered again and started to back away, but a swift, deft movement snapped her neck, and she too was pulled into the undergrowth. A moment later, the severed human foot that had so unnerved the Labrador and its mistress was gone as well. French student missing. Last seen cycling through Richmond Park. Now you see. Star looked up from the metro and stared pointedly at her boyfriend. I don't see anything, Dan replied. You're a conspiracy theorist. You're going to fail your coursework if you don't stop obsessing and find a proper research topic. How can you say that? Star feigned annoyance and turned her attention back to the paper. I'm going to interview the park staff, she added. Someone must know something. You already tried that, remember? The park manager practically threw you out. Why can't you let it go? The park manager is hiding something. I know he is. Besides, I'm not going to talk to him. I'm going to talk to the other staff. He didn't let me talk to them last time. Then what makes you think he'll let you talk to them this time? I'm not going to ask him. Brendan Powell ruled Richmond Park with a mixture of rugged charm and brute force, or so he liked to think. It was true to say that he instilled in his underlings, his two assistant park managers, two wildlife officers, and the rest of the staff, something akin to awe. But it wasn't a matter of charm or force. It was more that the small, plain, quiet man somehow managed to generate in others a sense of unease, combined with a strong urge to please, which took them by surprise and rendered them acquiescent to his demands. His subordinates would always go that extra mile for him, and later, at home, wonder why they had, only to do it all again the next day. So when he decided that he was going to genetically recreate the long-extinct Irish elk using fallow-deer DNA without telling his bosses back at the Royal Park's head office, his astonished inner circle was sworn to secrecy and complied. Powell had a background in genetics, of course, having been a researcher and genetic engineer at a secret government facility attached to the University of Oxford before he was quietly let go following some ethical irregularities concerning the use of human DNA in animal cloning. Powell had never recovered from the fact that he had been beaten to creating the world's first deer clone. Dewey, the white-tailed deer, had been cloned from a dead buck, roadkill to be precise, and to add insult to injury, the remarkable feat had been achieved by a bunch of Texans. Powell had never been fond of Americans, and the southern ones, the ones from the Bible Belt, were the worst of all. His fiancée had left him for a Texan, and Powell had subsequently never married. 
Instead, his paranoia and determination to make servine scientific history had grown to near-obsessive proportions. It was 8.15, and the pedestrian gates were closed. The cull of female deer was in full swing, and Powell was inspecting the blood-soaked corpses of the fallow deer does that his wildlife officers had just brought in the back of a truck. They would be transferred into the vast warehouse near the Holly Lodge Park office, the far end of which Powell had turned into a small laboratory with facilities for cryogenic sample storage. Most of the deer would be sold locally for venison, but Powell could have his pick for his research and cell harvesting. Bring this one through to the lab when you're done, Powell told his underlings. Then clean up the truck and you can go. I won't be needing you tonight. Right, boss? Powell walked through the warehouse to his tiny lab, the jewel in the crown of what he saw as his personal empire. He'd left on the minimum number of neon strip lights necessary for him to navigate his way through the hangar-like structure, a decision he was starting to regret. In the half-light, the deer corpses seemed to shift slightly, their glazed eyes staring at him, tongues lolling like they were about to slither out of the gaping mouths. He imagined that he could hear the odd patter of a falling droplet, and he had to be careful not to slip on the blood that was beginning to pool near the still warm creatures. But he made it through to the far side and set about examining his latest specimen, a particularly fine doe, surprisingly large even for her mature age. An hour later, Powell was engrossed in his work when he heard a man shouting outside. Hello? Is anyone in there? Powell froze and wondered whether to switch off the lights, but that would be even more of a dead giveaway than doing nothing. The intruder wouldn't let up, and eventually Powell stripped off his latex gloves and went outside. A young man was pacing up and down in the courtyard between the warehouse and the lodge's other outbuildings, evidently attracted to the light emanating from Powell's lab. Who are you? demanded Powell. You shouldn't be here. The park is closed. I know, I'm sorry, the young man responded. I thought my girlfriend might be here. You really need to leave, insisted Powell. Please, you don't understand. My girlfriend said she was going to the park today. She didn't come home. She's not answering her phone. Dan pleaded with Star to wait for him to get back from his lectures. They'd go to the park together. But no, stubborn as ever, she'd gone alone. Only a note attached to the fridge freezer with a star tarot card magnet informed him that she would be back for dinner. As you can see, said Powell, your girlfriend isn't here. Now, come with me. I'm assuming you got here on foot, so I'll drive you back to the Richmond Gate. Please help me look for Star. I can call the police, but it will probably be ages before they get here. Now look. Although the Metropolitan Police Royal Park's Operational Command Unit was stationed in Holly Lodge, they knew nothing of Powell's laboratory, and Powell had no intention of risking the possibility of any of the Met's finest poking around his private domain. What did you say your name was? Dan. Daniel Nichols. My girlfriend's name is Star Williams. She's doing some research in the park for her master's degree. She's spoken to you before. Here's a picture of her. Dan pulled out his smartphone and held it in front of Powell's face. Ah, yes. Very nice girl. Powell had all but thrown the irritating bitch out of his park. She'd been snooping around, asking about missing people and throwing around some pretty wild notions. Just what he needed. 
Sure, people sometimes disappeared. Sure, human bones had been found on a couple of occasions. But Powell had managed to persuade everyone that they were old animal bones, and he'd disposed of them before the police could be told. He'd be damned if anything was going to interfere with the groundbreaking work he was carrying out. Work that would win him a Nobel Prize, and make those Oxford bastards who'd sacked him eat their hats. I do remember talking to her, but that was some time ago, and she definitely wasn't here today. Or maybe she didn't come to see you. Maybe she spoke to someone else on your staff. I'd have known. Look, your girlfriend definitely wasn't here today. Why don't you go home? She'll probably be there already, waiting for you. Dan didn't look convinced. There's nothing we can do now. Go home, and if your girlfriend isn't back by tomorrow morning, give me a ring, and I'll talk to my staff and to the park police. The park manager sounded sincere. He had a compelling way about him, and Dan started thinking that perhaps he'd overreacted. Powell picked up on his weakening resolve. Come on, he said. I'll drive you to the exit. The riders left Stag Lodge stables and headed west towards Martin's Pond, before turning north in the direction of Spanker's Hill Wood. We're going to canter as far as those trees, the instructor told her group. We go in single file. There are eight of them in total. The instructor took the lead. She was a slim, athletic woman in her late twenties, her bottle-blonde hair tied back in a neat ponytail, just below the rim of her navy velvet riding hat. Unnoticed by all but one of the other equestrians, a silent testosterone-fueled shoving match briefly ensued as two dads, who were accompanying their teenage children on the hack, jostled for position directly behind the instructor. A tanned, squash-buckling stockbroker on a black gelding asserted his alpha male status, shoving a pasty, slightly overweight secondary school teacher and his mount out of the way. Prick, hissed the teacher, as he moved into third position behind his rival. The stockbroker grinned smugly, his eyes glued to the toned, jodper-clad buttocks of the riding instructor. Behind the teacher rode a meticulously dressed woman in her forties, a hairnet keeping her hair perfect under her riding hat. A senior staff member at a management consulting firm, she paid to stable her grey mare at the Stag Lodge stables. During the week, the stable girls exercised the mare, but she was here every weekend, rain or shine. Usually she took the mare out on her own, but the group hadn't been full and the instructor had said she could tag along if she wanted. She'd hoped she might meet a nice man who shared her interest in horses, but the two men were oblivious to anything, including their own kids, apart from the sexy young riding instructor, and the rest of the group consisted of teenagers. Alpha Male's daughter Harriet and her best friend from school rode behind the businesswoman. Harriet was as tanned and confident as her father, and kitted out in the latest riding gear. She rode on a pretty Palomino filly, whose pale mane and tail matched her own flaxen hair. Harriet's friend wore jeans rather than jodhpurs, and had borrowed a riding hat from the stables and Harriet's old pair of riding boots, but had been riding often enough before and was happy handling her placid brown mount. The school teacher's sixteen-year-old son followed the two girls, doing his best to strike up a conversation with them while the horses were walking, but the girls ignored him giggling and squealing like they were the only people on the ride. And then there was Freddy. 
Freddy's mother had decided that the only way for him to lose weight and get some fresh air was to separate him from his geeky video game playing buddies and make him go riding. Team sports were out of the question, as Freddy had no athletic friends, and swimming wasn't an option as the boy absolutely refused to wear swimming trunks in public. Freddy's mum had been bringing him to Richmond Park for riding lessons for six months now, initially in the quadrangle at the stables, but in the past month he'd improved enough to join the other riders on hacks through the park. While Freddy took part in the hour-long lessons, his mum would sit patiently in the family Volkswagen in the car park, reading the Sunday paper and listening to the radio. Sometimes the rides were okay. Sometimes they were actually quite fun, especially if the other kids were friendly and if he got a decent horse. This time the hack sucked, and Freddy was already looking forward to getting home and having his friends around to play video games. Their current favourite was the one where if you open the music box with the five-pointed star carved to the lid, you get chased by bloodthirsty, dead-eyed ghost girls who appear out of nowhere and crawl after you along the ceiling and down the walls. When the blazing sun is set and the grass with dew is wet, then you show your little light, twinkle, twinkle, all the night. Freddy dug his heels repeatedly into his horse's flanks, but there was no way the large bay gelding with the star between its eyes was going to canter. Thick-skinned and lazy, the horse had no interest whatsoever in the chubby kid on its back. But Freddy kept kicking, and the other horses were getting further and further away, so eventually the gelding deigned to break into a trot. Freddy kept up the pressure, sweating more than his horse in an attempt to catch up with the others. The instructor slowed her mount to a walk, then reined it in and turned to see how her group was doing. Alpha male came to a halt right beside her. The school teacher's chestnut gelding wouldn't stop, and cantered right past the instructor, rider pulling clumsily at its reins. It finally came to an abrupt halt, the teacher narrowly avoiding falling off, and ending up wrapped around the horse's neck. You okay there? the instructor inquired. Fine. Red-faced with embarrassment, the disgruntled teacher settled back into the saddle and reinserted his feet into the stirrups. Alpha male smirked and tried to catch the instructor's eye. The businesswoman, the two girls, and the teacher's son reined in their mounts at the edge of the wood, and now they all stood, waiting for Freddy to catch up. Seeing the other horses at a standstill, the bay gelding slowed from a trot to a walk again. Then it stopped, lowered its head almost pulling the reins out of Freddy's hands, and grabbed a large mouthful of grass. Freddy dug his heels into its flank once more, but the beast didn't even seem to notice. Freddy kicked it again, and the gelding ambled off slowly, towards the waiting group, chewing as it went. We'll have a nice walk through the woods, the instructor said. Let the horses cool down a bit. Single file. Freddy hadn't even caught up as the last of the group disappeared into the trees. His bum, back and legs were sore. He was tired and pissed off. Why did he always have to get the laziest, ugliest, slowest horse? He kicked the bay again, urging it on after the others. The riders were noisy, chatting and joking as they entered the wood. Their horses rustled the bushes and snapped twigs as they made their way along the sandy track that weaved through the trees. The wind was blowing from their direction, carrying the scent of the riding party to whatever it was that watched them, unnoticed, from the leafy boughs of an ancient oak, 
salivating as it sucked in the musk of their sweating flesh through mud-caked nostrils. The first seven riders moved confidently through the trees, horses striding nose to tail. The two girls were sharing a private joke, the teacher's son unable to ride up alongside them for fear of kneecapping himself on a tree. They were so far ahead of him that Freddy couldn't even see them through the trees. He let out an exasperated sigh and just sat there for a moment, the unfeasibly creepy rendition of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star from the horror video game going round in his head. As your bright and tiny spark lights the traveller in the dark, though I know not what you are, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Mustering all his determination, Freddy pummeled the horse's flanks with his heels. No wonder Clint Eastwood wore spurs. One kick from one of those and the damn nag would be running like a racehorse. Impossibly, Freddy's horse slowed down even more, grabbing the odd mouthful of vegetation as it ambled along. As it passed under a particularly leafy old oak tree, something heavy fell on it from above. It snorted in alarm as the weight on its back suddenly increased then disappeared altogether, the saddle being the only thing left for it to carry. Startled, it trotted a few paces after the other horses, then slowed down to a walk once more. It wasn't until the other riders had cleared the wood, the instructor stopped to regroup, and the large bay with the star wandered out riderless, that anyone noticed Freddy's disappearance. Oh no. The riding instructor's face dropped, and she rode up to retrieve Freddy's mount. Would you mind holding him for me, please? She asked Alpha Male, handing him the bay gelding's reins. She eyed the edge of the wood, expecting the chubby kid to emerge after his mount, but when he didn't, she started to worry that he might actually have hurt himself. Could you please wait here for me? I'll be back in five minutes. But the chubby kid was nowhere to be seen, and the panicked instructor tried to keep her voice steady as she phoned the accident through to her boss, then apologised to the group and informed them that they'd have to return to the stables immediately. Freddy's mother looked up in surprise as she saw the group heading back after less than half an hour. Her surprise turned to despair when she spotted Freddy's riderless mount. Oh my god! Mrs. White scrambled out of her VW and ran towards the riders, spooking the horses in her panic. Where's Freddy? Mrs. White. The instructor slid gracefully from her mount and tried to calm the woman before shouting and arm-waving caused one of the horses to bolt. I'm so sorry. My boss has phoned the police. They're out looking for Freddy. I'll be joining them as soon as I get the others back to the stables. What happened? Where's Freddy? The search was in full swing. The park's police were directing visitors away from Spanker's Hill Wood and had cornered off the small dark lake at its northeastern end. A couple of officers were poking around in the muddy water with hooked poles, waiting for a met dog unit to join them. Another officer was trying to persuade Freddy's distraught mother to go home, or at least wait in her car. We're doing everything we can, Mrs. White, soothed the officer. If Freddy's wandered off, he might return to the car park to look for you. Why don't you go and take the weight off your feet for a bit? If there's any news, I'll come and find you, I promise. Powell watched as the sobbing woman moved away from the policeman. She dialed a number on her mobile phone, evidently got no response, then stood and watched the police, her body language expressing utter desolation. 
Powell felt sorry for her, but there was far more important issues at stake. He was weeks away from creating a stem cell line closer to that of the Irish elk than anything he'd synthesised before. He had no idea how wide the dog-led search would be. What if the animals unearthed the results of his less successful experiments? Or worse, the bones that a dog had dug up and he'd been forced to rebury after convincing the animal's owner and the less canny members of his staff present at the time that they were bovine remains and not human at all? Perhaps the missing kid really had come to a sticky end. If it ever came out that he'd covered up a string of possible deaths in the park, he would not only lose his job and his liberty, but the Irish elk would never walk in England's green and pleasant land again, and the name of Brendan Powell would fade into eternal insignificance. The horror! Mr Powell? Powell's face fell as he turned around and saw the young man who'd lost his meddling student girlfriend. Mr Powell, what's going on? Dan came to a breathless halt by the park manager. He hadn't been able to get hold of Powell on the phone, so he'd reported Star missing at the local police station, then headed back to the park. As Dan took in the police line and the group of officers beyond, he started to panic. Oh my god, is it Star? Has something happened to Star? No, sighed Powell. His day was rapidly descending into nightmare territory. Nothing like that. A riding group lost a kid, don't worry. Don't worry. What's wrong with you, man? Dan lost his call. He strode rapidly towards the police cordon. His determined expression attracted the attention of a police officer. Sir, you're not allowed in here. My girlfriend's missing. Dan was surprised at how shaky his voice sounded. I thought maybe you were looking for her. Your girlfriend? As Freddy's mother, who'd been listening from a few metres away, headed towards Dan and the officer... An ashen-faced Powell headed in the opposite direction. Like Freddy's mother, Brendan Powell hadn't slept all night. Unlike Freddy's mother, Powell had revisited the various burial sites he'd created around the back of Holly Lodge, most of them behind the building that housed the park's met unit, going by the general rule of thumb that nobody expects crime next to a police station. He'd been lucky the previous day. The police dogs and handlers that everyone had been waiting for had been called away on account of a suspected terrorist attack in Kingston, and Powell had bought himself a night's reprieve to carry out his inspection, ready to dig up and remove anything he deemed unsatisfactorily hidden. But his interment spots seemed secure enough, and Powell decided to let sleeping deer, and the odd human bone, lie. So, with a heavy heart, he burned as many cryo-samples as he could and went to be seen to be helping the superintendent of the Royal Park's operational command unit with his search as soon as the sun came up. Today, the police dogs arrived and led their handlers straight to a hollowed-out oak tree in Spankers Hill Wood before setting off northwest amidst a flurry of excited yapping. Powell and the superintendent watched them go, before returning to the super's vehicle. Let me know when you find something, the super told the dog handlers over his walkie-talkie, before turning to Freddy's bleary-eyed mother and a shattered-looking Dan, the two of whom had joined forces in their distress. Let's all go get a cuppa, and we'll join them as soon as they have something for us. But I want to look for Freddy. Officer Bennett thanked his lucky stars that, unlike the regular uniformed officers accompanying him and Briggs, he hadn't eaten breakfast that morning. 
He continued to stare in dismay at the two half-eaten torsos hanging above his head. The headless body was more than likely the boy who'd gone missing from the riding lesson. The other corpse was that of a young woman, her breasts and right arm missing, her belly gutted like a fish, dead eyes staring ahead, her face stained with blood, mud and tear-smeared mascara. An impossibly vibrant blue and orange star tattoo on the girl's left arm defied the dried blood and mud that caked the rest of her. Bennett hoped that the large gash on the girl's head was the indicator of a swift demise. Ozzy barked and tugged at his leash. Sick. Officer Briggs intoned behind Bennett like a mantra, then turned his attention back to Arnie, who was barking again and dragging the handler beneath the glossy leaves of a wild rhododendron bush. What is it, boy? Bones, blood-stained clothes, three wallets, two mobile phones, a camera, a pair of glasses. Officer Briggs, the older of the two, remembered finding the odd disturbing stash of porn mags, women's underwear and sometimes even children's clothes in various London parks and commons throughout the 1980s. The presence of any clump of bushes had seemed enough reason for a pervert to set up shop. But this wasn't the lair of a regular run-of-the-mill sicko. Until recently, this had been the home to whoever had slaughtered the poor souls now hanging from the vast beech tree deep in the heavily timbered, fenced-off section of Richmond Park known as Sidmouth Wood. Well done, Arnie. Come away now. Bennett, come and take a look at this. I've seen enough to last me a lifetime, came the response. But a moment later, Bennett and Ozzy joined Briggs and Arnie under the rhododendron bush. Then the dogs were off barking and pulling their handlers out of the bushes and through the woods. Make sure no one touches anything, Briggs called to the two regular officers as he reached for his walkie-talkie. The uniforms would have to wait for the super and the crime scene investigators without him and Bennett. We've located two bodies in Sidmouth Wood, sir, Briggs informed the superintendent. The uniforms are staying with them. We're heading west. The dogs have picked up a trail. I'm sorry, Mrs. White, I'm afraid you'll have to stay here, the superintendent told the distraught woman. But they found something. What have they found? Have they found Freddy? Please tell me. Dan approached as well, and now the superintendent had two distressed members of the public in his face. He decided not to lie. They found some human remains. Oh my God. Mrs. White turned ashen. Whose remains? asked Dan. We don't know that yet. If you'll excuse me, I need to get over there straight away. But you promised we could go with you as soon as they found something, sobbed Freddy's mother. She looked like she might collapse at any moment, and Dan comforted her. Doing so distracted him from his racing thoughts and growing nausea. I'm sorry, ma'am, sir. You need to stay here. Mr Powell will stay with you, and I'll be in constant touch with him. Powell nodded reluctantly desperate to know what was going on in his park, but relieved in some small way to be delaying that knowledge and the inevitable media furore that it would bring. There were already media people crawling all over the place, and Powell hoped that the police would manage to keep them away from whatever it was that the dogs had unearthed. The shouts and baying dogs woke them from a deeper sleep than they should have allowed themselves, given that much of the girl and the remains of the chubby blonde kid were still suspended in the branches of the hanging tree, 
and the boy's skull and those bones that had been picked clean were still awaiting burial. Jimmy groaned awake, then yelped as his father kicked him hard in the small of the back. Get up, you fucking idiot, we've got to go! Instantly alert and attuned to the danger they found themselves in, Jimmy was up and running in seconds. He'd always known this day would come. His father had said it would. They knew what to do. The only unrehearsed part of the doomsday plan was the part that Jimmy was best at. Work out where the potential threat was coming from. Figure out which way the wind was blowing. With any luck, the direction would be the same. And then flee the other way. Jimmy had lived in the park for much of his life. His father voted Young Conservative of the Year in 1979, had overstretched himself financially in the 1980s, gambled everything on the stock market, and subsequently lost the family home and all their otherworldly possessions in the crash of 1987. Wanted by his former employees, the Inland Revenue and the Serious Fraud Office, for insider trading, embezzlement and a number of suspicious transactions involving hedge funds, and by the Metropolitan Police for murdering his wife, who he believed was having an affair with a tax inspector, Jimmy's father had disappeared off the radar, taking his seven-year-old son with him. They lived rough, eating from bins, hiding from the police, moving from place to place. Eventually, they'd ended up in Richmond Park. Jimmy's father hardly spoke any more, other than to bark instructions or recriminations. Without his wife's tempering influence, his aggressive streak had free reign, and he'd taken to physical violence, with Jimmy bearing the brunt of his frequent rages. But he'd kept the two of them alive, stealing food from the Pembroke Lodge cafeteria, catching ducks, fishing in the ponds, trapping small animals, and occasionally even bringing down a deer. He and Jimmy hid for much of the day and foraged for wood at night. No one must see us, he drummed into his son's head until it stuck. You understand? If they see us, they'll kill us, just like they killed your mother. And no one had seen them, until the day when an amateur photographer chased a shrew right into the thicket in which they'd been sleeping. The man stopped short, staring at the filthy piles of rags lying on the ground beneath the spot where the shrew had disappeared into the bracken. There were feet protruding from one of the piles. Oh my God, breathed the man, and next thing he knew, the larger heap of rags lifted itself from the ground and hurled itself at him. Then he was being hit over and over, the pain in his head, his face and his arms, which he'd raised in a vain bid to protect himself, unbearable. Jimmy merely watched as his father checked to make sure the man was dead, and then wiped the man's blood from his own face. Get the knife, Jimmy's father grunted. Then mistaking the surprised look in his son's eyes for disapproval, he added angrily, Well, what are you waiting for? It's no different than a deer. But it was different than the deer. It was so much better. The meat had a sweet, pungent taste to it, and when his father roasted some of it once it got dark and the park staff had left for the night, it tasted a lot like the pork that Jimmy's mum had cooked, and which he could still vaguely remember. Those memories of home, of his mother the sweet, slightly sickly smell of the cooked meat and the glorious feeling of a full belly transformed something in Jimmy. For the first time since his life had changed so drastically, Jimmy felt a sense of well-being, of belonging, of things being as they should. He fell asleep without fear, with a newfound confidence, knowing that he was no longer the hunted, he was now the hunter. This way, Jimmy shouted, 
The adrenaline coursing through him was urging him to fight rather than flee, and he could feel the stirrings of the erection that so often accompanied any precipitous action in his life these days. But his infrequent better judgment and the grim look on his father's face had him running for the western edge of Sidmouth Wood and the border of the park beyond. Where's the map? Jimmy's father shouted after him. I've got it! Jimmy had found the map of London tucked into the back pocket of the trousers he'd taken from a tourist he'd killed, and that's where the man had stayed, the trousers having been only slightly too big for Jimmy. The man was tattered now, but Jimmy cherished it, and it was about to play the major role in his father's D-Day plan that it had been kept for. You stupid fuck! Jimmy's father shouted as he ran after him. This is all your fault. If you get out of this alive, I'm going to kill you! Jimmy almost hadn't noticed the chubby blonde kid on the clunky big horse. He was lagging so far behind the others. The kid was probably about his own age, and heavier than Jimmy, but Jimmy had grown large and muscular in recent months. He'd stormed off after yet another fight from his father, and the plan had been to spend a couple of hours watching the upright pigs coming and going, checking out suitable ambush sites and savouring the possibility of a kill without actually going in for one. He and his father still had much of the girl left to eat. Indeed, it was the girl who'd been the source of much of the malcontent between him and his father since Jimmy had dragged her into their main hideaway in Sidmouth Wood the previous night. What the fuck is this? Jimmy's father stared at him incredulously. Dinner. Jimmy stood his ground. I've told you about this before. You're going to get us killed. They'll find us and they'll kill us, just like they killed your mother. Mother was a bitch. You said so just like all the other bitches. Perhaps she deserved to die. You little shit! Jimmy's father lashed out at him, but Jimmy was faster. He ducked his father's blow and instinctively swung at his attacker, surprising both of them when his father went down. The ill-concealed look of fear in his father's eyes gave Jimmy a rush that he hadn't felt since his first human kill. But then Jimmy saw his father's expression change from fear to panic and followed his gaze to the spot where he'd left the sow. You stupid fuck! His father had pulled himself up and pushed past Jimmy, frantically looking around the murky undergrowth. You didn't even kill her! Shit! Jimmy dropped to all fours, studying the ground and bushes to ascertain the direction his prey had taken. He didn't need to look long. Disturbed foliage and a fresh blood trail led a short distance away to a large bush, under which Star had finally succumbed to her injuries. It's okay, she's here. Jimmy and his father silently dragged the body back to the thicket in which they usually processed their food. They worked swiftly, cutting off what they needed and hoisting the rest up into the hanging tree. They lit a small fire, cooked and ate. It was Jimmy's father who finally broke the silence that had settled uncomfortably between them. You have to stop, he said, fully expecting another argument. But over the teenager, Jimmy surprised him. Okay. And Jimmy meant it, until he saw the chubby blonde kid alone and irresistibly vulnerable. Jimmy hadn't counted on the fat kid being so heavy. In fact, he hadn't counted on much of anything, nor did he have a plan on how to get up to Sidmouth Wood with the body. All he'd wanted to do was get as far away from his father as possible. Every time it was the same old story. They'll kill us just like they killed your mother. There's enough other stuff for us to eat. But whenever Jimmy killed one of the upright pigs, his father ate it happily enough. Besides, 
The other stuff didn't cut it with Jimmy anymore. Not only was long pig easier to procure on account of its slowness, lack of vigilance and general stupidity, but Jimmy was completely hooked on it. It was hard to tell which excited him more, the exhilaration of the hunt, the thrill of the kill, the sweet taste of the meat or the sense of well-being that the eating brought. Jimmy started to get aroused again just thinking of the moment when he leapt on the fat kid's back. He'd brought him off his horse, twisted his neck and pulled him into the undergrowth without a moment's hesitation. It was a single flowing movement, an action so perfect that it must have been rehearsed over and over somewhere in Jimmy's collective unconscious and woven into the very fabric of his DNA. But once he'd made the kill, Jimmy realised that he needed to get out fast. Even with a much lighter body, it wouldn't have been possible, as there was a lack of tree cover between Spanker's Hill Wood and the larger Sidmouth Wood. Too many people and too many hours of daylight still left. And then he heard one of the riders returning. With a supreme effort, Jimmy dragged the remains into the hollowed-out trunk of an ancient tree. He pulled a vast piece of peeled bark over the hollow, and determined to stay there with the corpse until dark. Unbeknownst to him, his luck was in. The same incident that bought the park manager time by keeping the Mets dog unit away also ensured that Jimmy's hiding place went undetected for the rest of the day. Once night fell, he returned to Sidmouth Wood to apologise to his father and ask for his help, and the two of them dragged Freddy's remains back to their lair in time for an early meal. They broke cover and headed west by northwest, just as the police dogs and officers entered the wood from the opposite direction. The dead bodies distracted their pursuers long enough to give them the chance to get clear of Sidmouth Wood, and as Ozzy and Arnie picked up their scent, they were already heading for Petersham Gate and out of the park. They crossed Petersham Road and darted into the alleyway directly ahead. The narrow footpath weaved between large suburban houses, and father and son followed it, emerging by the little graveyard behind St Peter's Church. Jimmy's father had lived on Richmond Hill, frequently strolling around Petersham Meadows and the surrounding area, so he quickly got his bearings. They turned right at the church, then passed Petersham Nurseries, along another footpath. A bricked-up arch loomed on their right. They hurried on, turning right onto River Lane, past Petersham Lodge and through Petersham Woods, finally reaching the Thames. The river stretched grey before them, Glover's Island to their right. It was a cold, rainy day, and the path along the river was mercifully devoid of human presence. The only immediate causes of concern were the houseboats bobbing on the dark water and the distant sound of police sirens. Jimmy's father studied the boats closely. To their left, on the far side of the river, just visible in the bushes, was a small, grubby boat, an outboard motor attached to the stern, Who'd leave an engine attached to a boat that was asking for trouble? Perhaps it wasn't working, or the owner of the boat was close by. But if there was even the slightest possibility that the motor was functional, then the risk of finding out was worth it. Listen, you stupid shit. Jimmy's father was breathing heavily from the exertion of their escape. We'll go right down to the water and head downriver for a bit, as far as the island. That way they'll think we crossed there and they'll look for us on the island or the far bank. But we'll double back along our tracks from our starting point on the back, there, and swim across to that boat, over there. If we can get the motor started, we'll head up river, there. 
If not, we'll take a houseboat. We'll have to move fast so the owners won't have time to make a sound. Jimmy grinned in response. His father glowered at him, adding, We try the boat first. Let's go. They were lucky. The engine started and they were soon heading upriver, southwest, past Eel Pie Island and south past Twickenham and Teddington. A police helicopter flew overhead but didn't spot them or raise the alarm. The pilot headed straight for the southern bank of the Thames opposite Glover's Island, where Ozzy and Arnie were running frantically back and forth. The river looped west, then north, around the Hampton Court grounds. As Brendan Powell sat facing Freddy's sobbing mother and a scowling morose Dan in Richmond Park's Met Unit base, Jimmy and his father passed Tags Island unnoticed and disembarked in the bushes by St Albans Riverside Walk. They removed the motor from the boat and hid it in a fenced-off section of undergrowth near a small weir. Then they sank the boat itself and crossed Hampton Court Road, slipping into their new home via the Hampton Gate. So this park wasn't as big as the one they'd been living in, so there wouldn't be as many animals to eat. But in a city boasting over 15 million tourists a year, one particular type of hairless animal would never be in short supply and the river had done wonders for Jimmy's appetite. Bushy Park The second largest of England's royal parks. 1,099 acres of woodlands, grassland, gardens and ponds. Home to 320 deer, 150 types of solitary bees and wasps. 123 species of endangered invertebrates an undisclosed number of metre-long carp, and something else. That was Anna Taborska's The Star, as read by Janie Napier. Janie Napier is a professional writer from the south of England. Though her growing love for horror may be a recent thing, she is a certified nerd through and through and loves anything that gets both her mind turning and adrenaline rushing. Thank you, Janie. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Lessel Baxter, Orion D. Hegra, and Paul Belcher, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts, and leave us a five-star review. 
you'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we explore the depths of depravity with more Tales to Terrify. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.